Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about wretched rebirth and consuming coping mechanisms. I'm your host, Steve Taylor. And tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Matt Martinek and D.B. Anthony are voice talents Nick Goroff and Nate Dufort. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to... Turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale this evening is written by Matt Martinek and is performed by Nick Goroff. Now, without further ado, I present to you The Butterfly of Prometheus. The ability to better oneself has always amazed me. To take a piece of clay and to mold it into something better. To hold the ugly in your trembling hands and form the mess into magnificence. There is something to be said for such a feat. After all, progress is important. Sameness is boring. My transformation began around age 13 as the acne multiplied on my face and back, and the testosterone began to leak from every pore. The live wire of puberty was trying to kill me, bit by bit, though I wasn't going to give up without a fight. 
And so, I forced a different kind of change. One that was dependent not upon nature itself, but upon willpower alone. The veins began to show. The striations pulsated with every reputation I struggled through. Past the pain, through the soreness, I continued on. I knew right away that I had found my one true love. Bodybuilding. My father was a surgeon, and it was expected that I would follow the same path. All of those years of schooling, however, were not very appealing. And even beyond that, an interest in the medical profession was not one that I shared with old Daddy-O. I didn't care about heart transplants one bit. I saw myself on stage, oiled up under the lights, living my dream. My parents didn't realize how very dedicated I was until I wanted to trade out my dad's old sand-filled weight set for a standard-sized Olympic one. For my 16th birthday, it was all I asked for. My father's reply, Sounds alright to me. I thought you were going to ask for a car. Vehicles and girls, however, were going to have to take a backseat for the time being. Lifting weights was a lot safer anyways. And easier on my mother's blood pressure, obviously. I was not lacking in discipline whatsoever. I juggled my schoolwork with my training very carefully. One would not fall beneath the other, though this regimen didn't leave much time for anything else. I wanted to be the best at whatever I did, and that type of thinking always comes with a price. Still, I continued. I studied all the greats. Reg Park, Arnold, Frank Zane. But I have to say, Ronnie Coleman was always my favorite. He was an absolute freak of nature. A fucking monster among men. I knew I would never get to a height such as his. But even a tiny morsel off of his plate would suffice my appetite. I wanted more, no matter what it would take. At 17 years of age, I began to set my sights on my first amateur bodybuilding competition. I realized very quickly that the life of a true bodybuilder was not for the squeamish. But it wasn't the training that surprised me. I was already used to that. It was the goddamn diet that hurt me. Eating clean in order to gain weight was such a task. A real job in itself. There's just so much pasta and so many egg whites a person can eat before they feel like exploding. The odd jobs I worked in the summertime barely paid for the grocery bill. But it was just another price to pay towards the goal I was after. The plan was to bulk up for six months, then to cut for four. I did it by the books, naturally. No cheating, because cheating is for pussies. I skyrocketed from 145 pounds to 185 pounds in that bulking phase. The first part of the plan was achieved with success. Unfortunately, after that is when the real work began. 
In order to do well in the competition, I was looking to get around 5% body fat, even less if I could. My calories were cut in half. Boiled chicken breast became my friend. Training intensified and reps were increased. I was in hell, and the seventh circle of that hell was the competition itself. No amount of study or so-called preparation was adequate, as I found myself on that stage, being visually picked apart by the judges and audience. I had visualized it so many times in my mind as I posed in front of the mirror in my own bedroom, relaxed, front double biceps, side chest. But it all still paled in comparison to the real thing. My muscles strained with each pose, to the very verge of cramping up completely. The nerves attacked me, making me want to throw up what little contents existed in my shaking stomach. But still, there I was, at my very best. A dehydrated 165 pounds, shredded, covered in layer upon layer of spray tan, and ready to pass out. I was deep in the moment, giving everyone the best that I could. But it was simply not enough. I was looking to place in the top three, at the very least. I was not even close. Backstage, I was devastated. And knocking on the door of a nervous breakdown. My folks watched me from the corner of the dressing room as I fought back tears. Failure was not something I was used to, but I just had to know. How could I have placed so poorly? What did I do wrong? Before we left, I went up to one of the judges and simply asked him. Even if it hurt like hell, I wanted the truth. And without pause, he gave it to me. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. The vascularity is there. The tone is there. You don't look half bad for your first comp. But there's just more to it. It's the symmetry and proportion. Think of it in terms of a butterfly. If you were to fold a butterfly in half, its wings and design would match up perfectly. See your bicep when your right arm is flexed? A nice developed peak. On your left, not so much. It almost runs flush into your shoulder. Probably at least uh, half an inch difference in size. Kind of the same with your delts. And your traps. <laughs> they are huge for your size. Amazing. But they make the shoulders look small. And your quads, not developed enough. They don't match up with your upper body. It's the fine tuning that lets you place well in a competition. But that will come with time, experience. Keep at it, kid. You'll do fine. Bullshit. I knew, right at that very moment, that I would never step onto a stage again. There was no way I was going to be able to surpass that level of effort I had put in. I was not a butterfly. I never would be. And so I left that dream behind. I instead began my 13-year voyage to becoming a surgeon, just like my dad. 
bachelor's, undergrad degree, medical school, residency. It was quite a mountainous terrain that I had to climb, but I knew that I would do it. Hell, there was no other choice. As I began to delve into my studies, however, the words that judge had said to me would not leave my mind. The butterfly. Symmetry. Perfection. My interest eventually returned, and I began to lift weights again. I studied more and more about musculature. Not only human, but animal as well. The connectivity. The beauty of it. I wanted so badly to mold again. I needed to shape something amazing. I just wasn't sure how. Not yet, at least. I didn't really make any significant headway until I began to attend med school at UCLA. Undergraduate was a breeze, but this was something completely different. The difficulty level was at a maximum between schoolwork, lifting weights, and a part-time job bussing tables, I could barely handle it. I dreamt of quitting the whole thing daily. My parents were so excited that I was going through with it, though that they decided to pay for a rental in Culver City, which was only about 15 minutes away from campus. A decent house, for sure, but I was most interested in the basement. It was usefully sectioned into two halves. One half I would use for my weights and amenities, and the other half for my studies. In full transparency, I had, indeed, begun to experiment a little, on my own time, of course, which there wasn't much of. I used roadkill mainly, but I didn't mind. I had to start somewhere and dead tissue was the best option I had. I began practicing with anastomosis, which is the connection of veins or arteries through the use of sutures. Of course, with the animals being dead, I had to use a saline solution to pump through the modified ducts to check for leaks. This took a very long time to get good at. I also spent a lot of time on the connections of the muscles and joints, both the tendons and ligaments, and how to rejoin such things to bone. Squirrels, chipmunks, and rabbits were the usual patients, though every once in a while groundhog or even a small fawn would find their way onto my table. I chalked it all up to practice, after all. I was going to be a surgeon, right? Why not get a head start? Thankfully, I already had everything I needed in-house at UCLA. I would simply take them out of house. I stole items from the labs every single day I attended to use for my weekend experiments. And as we all know, items from the medical field are not cheap. I made sure that I kept up on my physique somewhat, no matter how lackluster it was. Besides working out at home, I attended a few gyms in LA to stay in the scene. I didn't have the money to pay for multiple gym memberships, so I would all most often pay back as someone's guest to get in for free. Most people don't have a problem with it, but every once in a while someone would turn up their nose in disgust as if I had the plague. No matter. 
Even though my initial dream was dead, I still wanted to be around it. I observed intently, but not like I used to. I now watched these men and women as the judges would. I tore them apart, muscle group by muscle group, and marveled at the shortcomings. But that was the point. They all had shortcomings, just as I did. Not one butterfly was to be found at these California havens of the egotistical. I was in good company. Maybe perfection did not exist in the real world after all. However critical I had become, it was impossible to ignore the strengths of some of these characters I was becoming associated with. There were a few in particular who I was truly impressed by. My mind would race back to my much younger self, playing with action figures in my parents' living room, removing the arms and legs of one, and popping them onto a torso of a different figure. It was the same here. If I could somehow take the very best attributes of some of these gym rats I was hanging out with and combine them all, then the formation of a true butterfly would be nothing but a pre-planned conclusion. Unfortunately, these men were not comprised of plastic, but instead flesh and bone. Thankfully for me, I was becoming quite experienced with such things. And so, the idea was born. My first specimen was chosen mainly for his pectorals. Around the gym we called him Big Larry. He had those big, thick, striated bastards that would not be denied. Of course, his favorite exercises were the bench press and cable crossovers. He really had it down, too. At the end of each muscle contraction, he would pause and hold until the veins were popping out and the pecs were fully engorged with blood. It was truly a thing of beauty. Unfortunately, Larry also sported a thick black mullet on top of his head with a magic mustache. He was stuck in the 80s, for sure, but I tried to ignore his style choices as best as I could. In no time at all, we were hanging out together at my house, maxing out on bench, drinking beer, and listening to Van Halen at full blast. I will never forget when I finally took him. 455 pounds was just slightly out of Larry's reach. The bar lowered to his chest, but simply never came back up. Spot! Help! What the fuck? Oh, I heard him all right. But I backed up to the wall and watched him struggle. The zipper on his fanny pack jingled as he tried to wiggle out from underneath. For some weird reason, I thought that the sheer weight itself would make him pass out. But after a half hour of watching him attempt an escape, I knew I had to intervene. A single ten-pound plate to his mullet-sporting skull did the trick perfectly. He was a little messy but alive. I even stitched up his head wound for him. I didn't want him dead, for Christ's sakes. Well, at least, not yet. Jonathan was next on the agenda. I was after those arms of his, 
19.5 inch biceps with nothing to sniff at. Perfect peaks, mixed with thick bulbous triceps and cannonball delts. He was the one who all the ladies would gawk at. Sexy, too. Italian. Jet black hair and quite the smooth talker. Funny fucking thing, though. Because after hanging out with him for a bit, he divulged to me that he was gay. This actually helped me, though, as it gave me another ruse to use in my grand scheme. It had been three days since Larry had first entered the lab, and it was a real pain in the ass keeping him breathing. Speed was important. As soon as I professed my attraction for Jonathan, the kink and circumstance of the situation had the man at my doorstep with a bottle of wine in tow. Within two hours, I had him nude on my bed, passed out from a mixture of Rohypnol and GHB, which was carefully spooned into his wine glass. It was a disgusting situation to have to carry a 190-pound muscle man down two flights of stairs into my basement with his nether region flopping smack smack against my back, but that soon proved to be the least of my worries. As soon as I opened the door to my laboratory, I saw it instantly. Larry's chest was no longer moving, and his skin was now a bluish-gray. Fuck, did I forget to feed him? Regardless, he was gone. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now... All you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. After removing the restraints from Lara's deceased body and dropping the big bastard into my portable freezer, I put Jonathan in his place, tied to the chair. Keeping the specimens alive for as long as possible was very important, as the tissue died. So did the odds of my masterpiece coming to fruition. And if they did expire, cold was the only thing I could think of to stave off the necrosis. Sure, rigor mortis would surely fuck things up a bit, but the stiffness would not last. There were ways around that but there were certain chemicals that I simply did not have access to, being only three years in at school and not in, in an actual fully functioning hospital. Bottom line, I was out of time. Because of this unforeseen death, I figured that I had about two days or so until Larry's contribution to the experiment would be rendered completely useless. And I still needed my missing piece. The thought of another failure crept into my psyche. I simply couldn't have that. Not again. 
I'm a hard gainer. It just takes more effort for me to build muscle than the normal guy. It's genetics, really. Where I have real trouble, however, is in the leg department. My dad has skinny chicken legs. So does my mom. It's a curse. So when I'm at the gym and spot a person who looks like they could squat a Prius, I take notice. This is where Mark comes in. He didn't skip leg day. He just skipped every other day. His flaw was his upper body, but he didn't care. He was more of the power lifter type. He got off on how many pounds he could move, not on how he looked in the mirror. My plan for him was a simple one, and one I had been concocting for weeks. Mark was under the impression that I had a pretty amazing squat rack I was looking to sell, and as soon as I mentioned it, I saw the gears in his brain began to turn. When I realized that poor old Larry had expired, within 20 minutes I was already on the phone with Mark, telling him that someone else may be interested in the rack. Oh, bro, don't do this to me. Fuck that dude, let me grab it today. What's your address? I'll bring my truck. The panic began to dissipate as I heard these words. Maybe all was not lost after all. I could spot the sunlight glinting off of Mark's bald head through the glass before he even reached the door. He had the look of a bulldog in heat. It was apparent that his plan for the day was to get this rack home and put together by evening. I imagined him at his house, all alone, loading the bar with 45-pounder after 45-pounder, with a piece of raw meat hanging out of his mouth and the blood dripping onto the floor. Just one of those guys, I guess. As I guided him to my cellar door so we could retrieve the non-existent equipment that he was so interested in, my heart began to pound faster and faster. I almost felt sick. It was the moment of truth after all. As Mark began to descend, I kicked at the middle of his back as hard as I could and he tumbled down the entire flight of concrete stairs. His head was bleeding badly. I pounced onto Mark like some sort of animal, but to my amazement he was still conscious. He was able to get off quite the punch, which ended up cracking my jaw and sending me to the floor. Some of my teeth click-clacked as they rolled along the cement, leaving their own tiny trails of blood. In complete survival mode, I grabbed the closest thing to me, a rubber workout band, and lunged at Mark once more. I was able to quickly take his back and wrap the band around the thick bull's neck. I tightened it as hard as I possibly could. My muscles burned as I thought back to that same type of searing pain I felt all those years ago when I bared my ass to those judges in failure. It took a while, but eventually the breathing ceased and the man's limbs fell limp to his sides. At this point, Mark's death was purely an afterthought. All of the pieces were now in place. Surgery was scheduled. A skilled professional I am not, and have never pretended to be, but I know enough to make a sculpture. That was all I was looking to do. The butterfly didn't have to reach the air, exactly. It just needed to flex its muscles for the crowd a bit. 
but it was not to be some amateur hack job either. Jonathan watched me from his chair as he cried and cried, and I made the most precise cuts I could. Mostly scalpel work, of course, when it came to the connective tissue. Three specimens from three separate gyms in the area. I knew that they would catch on eventually. I just needed a little time to complete my work. Schooling was over, and childhood was long past. I worked incessantly, using sutures, stitching, and dermal adhesive to put the pieces back together until time eventually flew away, and Jonathan, too, died either of malnourishment or pure terror. Not sure which. That was alright, though, as the arms were to be fastened at the very last anyway. The lab was a bloody mess, and I was now a creature of sickly habit, writhing happily in the puddled crimson I had created. After what seemed to be eons of searching and putting my plan into action, the day of unveiling finally came. The external artificial heart was already pumping the modified saline solution to the arteries and the veins, and the two separate batteries were on standby. Each electrode was placed accordingly onto each appropriate muscle. The human butterfly itself was mounted vertically to a wooden tabletop with its arms raised and clamped into a pose, along with the other fastening points of the neck, waist, and legs. The entire contraption was then tightly secured to the brick wall behind it. Although the skin was grey and necrotic, and some of the surgical connections were crude, the true spirit of the experiment remained. I spoke out loud to my specimens, as I thanked Larry for the gift of his torso and head, which I had shaved, especially for the occasion, applauded Mark for his powerful legs and fighting spirit, and appreciated Jonathan for his amazing arms and ability to suffer to the very end. Without these men and their sacrifices, none of this would have been possible. And so... With my heart in my throat and the sound of the authorities pounding down my kitchen door upstairs, I hit the switches on the batteries, and the show was underway. Standing there, in the corner of my makeshift laboratory, was the most complete bodybuilder to ever grace a stage. Under flickering lights, the human butterfly hit the double bicep posed with ease, as each muscle trembled the voltage shot directly into it. It was symmetry. It was proportion. And it was beauty. I was Prometheus providing the flame. I was Michelangelo admiring the chapel's ceiling. But unfortunately, my masterpiece was not meant to last for long. Smoke began to rise from the creation, and my nostrils were met with the stench of burning skin and hair. A few moments more, and the flesh seams broke apart, with the pink saline mixture beginning to spurt forth about the room in every direction. Eventually, the pieces of my beautiful butterfly began to melt away and putrefy into the floor beneath them forming a translucent pile of stinking human mess. 
I was on my knees with my arms raised to the heavens as the first officer burst forth into the room. I shouted to the tops of my lungs at him. I've finally done it! I hope you enjoyed The Butterfly of Prometheus, as written by Matt Martinek and performed by Nick Goroff. Matt Martinek is a singer-songwriter and author from Johnstown, PA, whose passion is the creative process itself. Whether it's through song or the written word, Matt's works always find their audience. Matt has also recently published his first collection of short horror stories, What Evil Lurks as well as his newest horror release, The Oddest Couple. Our second tale of the evening is written by D.B. Anthony and is performed by Nate DeFort. In it, a young man tells us the story of how he overcame his insomnia in his childhood. Things soon take a dark twist when the very thing that was helping him begins to haunt him in his sleep. And without any further ado... I present to you, Shadows Dancing in the Window. For as long as I can remember, I've had trouble sleeping. Melatonin has since stopped working, along with other pharmaceuticals that I've been prescribed over the years. The only thing I can remember that has ever worked for a long time has been the shadows dancing in the window. When I was a young boy in 1991, about five years of age, my mother moved us to the town of Lovecraft so that we would be closer to the doctors, she said, would help me with my insomnia. The house was much smaller than our old one, which my mother had sold after her second divorce. The light blue paint on the shingles was chipping from near constant sun exposure during the day, along with the white paint on all the trimming, shutters, and porch area. The yard was overgrown and full of weeds, suggesting no one had lived in the house for at least a few years. As we approached the porch, I spotted a few newspapers the paper boy must have delivered in anticipation of our arrival. My mother quickly collected them as we walked in, wanting to get updated on local news. The house was already mostly put together, with the majority of our furniture being put in place by our movers before our arrival. My mom sent me upstairs to unpack my room while she unpacked the kitchen and made us food. My room was on the second floor of the house. You could see our neighbor's house across the street from my window. Their house was about the same size, only their yard was well kept, and the house itself looked to have a fresh coat of yellow paint. In the house lived Mr. and Mrs. Gates. They were an elderly couple who had outlived their working years and retired. The only one of them we would ever see leave the house was Mr. Gates. He would make short trips into town in his Oldsmobile to the Dollar General, where my mom got a part-time job. They would occasionally have short conversations with each other at checkout. He was also the only one we would ever see maintaining the yard and gardening. My mom told me he had mentioned his wife was sick, 
so we did not see her because she was bedridden more days than not. Occasionally throughout the day, I would watch their house from my window, waiting to glimpse the woman he called his wife. When I lie in bed at night, I would try to picture what she looked like in my head. Sometimes I began to wonder if the real reason she didn't show her face was because age and sickness had made her wither and grow hideous. When I shared the theory with my mother, she replied by saying that she'd caught a glimpse of a picture of her in his wallet. She described her as looking like an older B. Arthur with longer hair. I told her there was no way of knowing how old the picture of her was or if it was even her. For all we knew, he could have just had a picture of B. Arthur in his wallet. She still disregarded my theory. My next theory was that her sickness had turned her into a zombie or monster he had chained up in the basement. This theory made my mother chuckle and joke that my wild imagination was the reason I wasn't able to sleep. I gave her the scenario that maybe she worked at a chemical plant that altered her DNA, making her crave human meat. Every night, he would bring her fresh human sacrifices to satiate her hunger. My mom said it would be more believable if people went missing around town more often, which was true. Lovecraft was a town where horrible things didn't happen, despite being named after the horror author. My third theory came after my mom brought me to the movies to watch Drop Dead Fred. While my mom was teasing me on the way home about my obvious crush on Phoebe Cates, I pondered whether Mrs. Gates could be an imaginary friend. When we got home after our usual pizza and wings dinner on movie night, I quickly went to my room to attempt to fall asleep. I lay there for hours watching time slowly tick by on my wall clock. I was listening to the soothing sounds of slow jazz playing through the headphones of my Walkman my mother had bought me the prior year for Christmas, along with a mixtape she made with songs she thought were soothing that were supposed to help me fall asleep. After the third hour and about my sixth playthrough of the mixtape, I spotted a light source reflecting on my window from across the street. I sat up and pulled my desk chair over to watch what was happening. The light was coming from the window on what was my left. I assumed it came from Mr. and Mrs. Gates' living room. I watched Mr. Gates peer out his window, as if to see if anyone was around or watching him. I leaned back in my chair, losing sight of him but making it so he wouldn't spot me. When I leaned forward again, he had pulled his shade down, and all I could see was his shadow that was being cast on the canvas by the light. I sat back in my chair like the eager audience. I was hoping that, finally, I would get another clue about Mrs. Gates. As I continued to watch him, his arm extended to someone who must have been sitting out of view of the window. Suddenly, he pulls up the small, slender shadow of a woman. She was shorter than him, to the point that her head lined up perfectly with his chest, which she was carefully laid upon. As Beethoven began playing the opening piano notes of Moonlight Sonata, they began to slowly sway together as if dancing to the music coming from my headphones. I watched as he carefully dipped her and smoothly lifted her back up. It was as if they were shadow puppets on a stage for only me to watch. Every motion was in sync with Beethoven's sonata. 
I hadn't realized until I woke up the next morning that I was slowly being lulled to sleep. In my slumber, I continued to see their shadowy silhouettes dancing to the tune of Beethoven's piano. I excitedly told my mother about it when I woke up that morning. While she was happy that I actually seemed to have figured out something to help me sleep, she said I must have been dreaming. She passed me a newspaper from a few days before we'd gotten into town and pointed to the obituary of Tabitha Gates. I read the obituary for a few minutes, learning she was born in 1929 as Tabitha Hollow before being wed to Arnold Gates in 1950. There was no mention of funeral plans or children. I pushed the paper back to her, saying that it must be a different woman. That night, I decided to stay up with my camera to try and get proof. I sat in my chair, which was still posted at the window from the night before, and waited. Hours passed, and the only light I saw was the light of fireflies flickering in the darkness as they flew around. I figured tonight must have been the night she was bedridden from her illness. In the morning, I emerged from my room, tired and rather disappointed. I could smell my mother cooking bacon and pancakes. When I entered the kitchen, she was dancing and singing along to Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch's new song. When I spoke up, she turned off the radio and turned to me, asking how much I had seen. Though I'd been watching her for a few minutes, I lied and told her I'd just walked into the kitchen. Acting embarrassed, she asked me how I slept last night. I told her that I hadn't, and that I also had not seen Mr. Gates dancing with Mrs. Gates. She looked as disappointed as I felt when I told her I hadn't slept. As she served me my breakfast, I could see that she was thinking from her expression. After a few moments, she got excited and suggested a rotating lamp. That day, my mom brought me to the store to pick one out. We found one with a small metal silhouette of a cowboy in the foreground, contrasting a plain white background that rotated with a few black clouds and cacti of various sizes to give the illusion he was moving. When we proceeded to the checkout, I spotted Mr. Gates already in line in front of us. This was the first time I had seen him up close. He was a tall man, even taller than my mom, who was 5'10". His hair was not completely gray like other men's hair that was around his age. Instead, it was still mostly his natural black with hints of gray here and there and cut into a short style, usually associated with old veterans. He was buying sewing needles and picking up a special thread he had ordered. I was too shy to talk to him. However, my mother was not, and they chatted about his taxidermy hobby. Though his voice sounded like Dirty Harry's, his speaking and dressing made him seem more like Mr. Rogers. My mother offered her condolences to his wife, and he smiled at her. Their conversation shifted to me and the lamp I was holding. My mother told him about my sleeping problems being why we got the lamp. It wasn't until he looked at me with his brown, almost black eyes that I realized my mom had told him about the shadows dancing in the window of his house. After what felt like an hour of him glaring at me, he smiled and revealed that he and his wife used to dance every night to her favorite song, 
which happened to be Beethoven's Piano Symphony No. 14, or, more put, Moonlight Sonata. On the way home, I questioned my mother about him telling her she was bedridden. She told me that sometimes people have a hard time accepting things like death, and when you're that old and have had someone around for so long, it's easier to talk about them as if they're still there than as if they aren't. We arrived home shortly after Mr. Gates, who was unloading groceries as we pulled into our driveway. He turned and waved at us as we walked into the house. My mom smiled and waved back. Later that night, I lay in bed listening to the mixtape my mother had made me. I watched the cowboy lamp I'd placed on my nightstand as it spun. The movement could have been more fluid and in sync with the rhythm of any of the songs on the tape. It was too slow, and the fact that the metal cowboy did not move ruined the illusion. I watched it for hours, still hoping I'd fall asleep. As I was just about to give up, a familiar light began to reflect on my window. I moved my chair over to the window and quickly spotted Mr. Gates in the same window before, looking up at mine. It appeared as though he waved to me, as if to approve of me watching before he pulled the shade. I forwarded my Walkman to the last song on the tape. Just like last time, as the first few notes were played on the piano, he reached over and helped a woman to her feet. The silhouette of the female looked the same as Mrs. Gates. Her head even sat in the same spot as hers. His dance with her and how he handled her seemed to be more careful and gentle this time. It was as if he was trying not to break her. Regardless, their motions were still in sync with the piano playing through my headphones. I didn't know what it was all about, the way they danced paired with the soothing sound of the piano that made me fall asleep. It just did. I continued to see them dancing in my dreams when I slept that night. However, I was no longer watching their shadows from the window of my room. Instead, I was in the front row of the stage they were performing on. The velvet curtain of the stage was drawn, and light illuminated them from behind, casting their shadows through the curtain. I continued to watch as he slowly swayed her around the stage. He seemed to be being less careful with her. As I continued to watch, something did not seem right. Every time he dipped her, it seemed her head snapped back violently, revealing some thread attached. On the third dip, her head finally fell off and rolled out from behind the curtain and onto my lap. I woke up in my chair, screaming. My mother rushed into the room and found me lying on the floor in a panic. I didn't tell her about the dream or about seeing Mr. Gates dancing that night. I doubted she'd believe me. Instead, I told her a large spider was on my desk, and I fell back onto the floor. My mom said it might be time to take care of the yard and spray insect repellent around the house. We went to the store after breakfast. My mom could tell I was still upset as we shopped around the hardware section. She sent me to the toy section, saying I could pick out any $20 that I wanted. 
I excitedly followed the signs to the toy section. Once I was there, I looked over all the X-Men action figures, looking for a new one to add to my collection. After a brief debate with myself about whether to get Wolverine, Gambit, or Cable, I went with the obvious choice of Wolverine. With my figure in hand, I tried to hurry back to the hardware section so I wouldn't lose my mom in a store I had yet to become familiarized with. I was so rushed that my speed walk was more like a run, and I barely paid attention to my surroundings. Suddenly, I was knocked back after running into a carriage that was pushed in front of me from one of the food aisles. Looking up, I saw Mr. Gates standing over me, offering me a hand to get up. The same hand he offered the female silhouettes. In my excitement over my newly acquired figure, I'd forgotten my nightmare momentarily. Seeing him, however, made it all come back like a repressed memory with a vengeance. I began to shake as chills went up my spine, and the hairs on my arms began to stand up. When I finally mustered the courage to look down, I saw her wrinkled and old face staring up at me. I could feel her hair on my hands and the coldness of her decaying skin. Her voice asked, Did you enjoy the show? I pushed her head away and began to run. I finally stopped running when I noticed I wasn't in the store anymore. The aisles of products that were on either side of me had become rows of seats. As the first few notes of Moonlight Sonata began to play, I could hear the sound of heels walking on the stage. I turned and was back in the front row of the dance hall. A headless Mrs. Gates had taken center stage alone. With the curtains open, I could see the stitches on the skin of her arms and legs that were not covered by her floral dress. The velvet curtains were open this time, and the stage was lit by the stage lights somewhere behind me. I remained in place, shaking and frozen in fear. I awoke in a hospital bed, in a cold sweat, with my heart racing. My arms were restrained to the bed. I could hear my mom calling for a nurse when she realized I was awake, but I didn't acknowledge her. I looked over to my side and spotted the Wolverine action figure with an envelope attached to it, blocking the view of the figure within the packaging. When the nurse came in and undid my restraints, I grabbed the figure from the table next to me and opened the envelope containing a Get Well Soon card. My mom encouraged me to open it without telling me who it was from. I hope you get well soon so we can have our favorite audience member back, Mr. and Mrs. Gates. Without realizing it, I looked at the card with a look of disdain and fear. My mom asked what was wrong. I told her what had happened from my point of view, and she told me hers. According to her, I ran into Mr. Gates' shopping cart and fell to the ground. He said I looked at him and fainted. He wasn't sure if I hit my head or not. My mom said that I began flailing around violently after that, as if I was having a terrible dream. She mentioned that Mr. Gates had stopped by to check on me, and that's when he dropped off the action figure. I looked down at it, sitting in my lap. It was the exact one I'd had in my hands in the store. The exact one that had turned into Mrs. Gates' severed head. I pushed it away 
not wanting to be reminded of it. My mom tried comforting me by telling me that Mr. Gates might have company over at night and that my overactive imagination was getting the best of me. I remained in the hospital for a few days after that. They tried to do a sleep study, but with my mind on Mrs. Gates' corpse, I was unable to fall asleep. When we finally arrived home, I went straight to my room, where I tried to distract myself with comic books and action figures. Wolverine stayed in its box. I still couldn't bear to look at it. When I began to feel tired, I laid in bed and tried my normal routine of listening to my mom's mixtape to try and fall asleep. When I first hit play, the opening notes of Moonlight Sonata resonated through my headphones. I quickly hit pause and fast-forwarded the tape to try and skip it. When I hit play again, the first few notes resumed. Confused, I pressed the fast-forward button again. However, again, the first few notes of Beethoven's sonata began to play. I tossed my Walkman aside and heard the sound of rain hitting the roof above me and the glass pane of my bedroom window. I looked over and saw the light from Mr. Gates reflecting on my window again. I remembered what my mom told me. He might have another woman over to fill the void. I grabbed my Walkman from where it landed and watched them in my chair. Mr. Gates had already begun dancing before I'd come to the window. However, their shadows were still in sync with the piano. I was almost asleep when I noticed Mr. Gates stagger, drop his dance partner, and grab his chest. I sat up as he fell to the ground. Still holding his chest, I ran to my mother's room and banged on the door. She called 911 while I rushed over to see if Mr. Gates was okay. I was out of breath by the time I reached the front door. As I opened it, the sound of Beethoven's piano began to overtake the sound of distant sirens. Every now and again, the song would skip, as if being played on a scratched disc or record that had been knocked off balance. I began to walk into the house, slowly calling for Mr. Gates. The living room was only a few feet to my left. When I turned the corner, I saw Mr. Gates lying on the floor, face down on top of his arm. In front of him was the sewn-together corpse of Mrs. Gates, wearing a floral dress. Her head hit the record player hard enough to break the stitches holding it on and rolled away from her corpse in front of where I was standing. I was frozen in place as the paramedics rushed in from behind me. I was unable to move until a police officer grabbed me from behind. He tried to shield my eyes, unaware of how much I had already seen. He escorted me back to my mother, who was waiting for me on the porch. He stood with us, asking my mother about what happened while I watched the paramedics roll out two black body bags on their stretchers. The next day, there was a news article about Mr. Gates' death. It left out the part about him being found with the taxidermy corpse of his beloved wife. Instead, opting to simply say he would be buried beside her at the local cemetery. We attended the short service for him, as did the rest of the town. As we sat there, I wondered if the rest of the town would have shown 
if they knew his dark secret. The night following his funeral, I sat at my bedroom window, looking at what was Mr. and Mrs. Gates' house. A for-sale sign was now in the yard. From here, I could see the empty living room. The estate company had come and cleared all their belongings while everyone was at the funeral. Even Mr. Gates' Oldsmobile had been towed away. All that was left was the empty house. As I left my chair and lay in bed, I saw the light reflecting on my window. Confused, I returned to my chair to see what was happening. The shade was now pulled down, setting the stage for the shadows to dance in the window. I hope you enjoyed Shadows Dancing in the Window, as written by D.B. Anthony and performed by Nate Dufort. Nate Dufort is a writer, producer, director, and voice actor who splits his time between Detroit and Chicago. He also performs over on the Creepy Podcast, which you can hear by going to www.creepypod.com. We're so thankful to have him share his talent with us. Now to the shows. Longtime resident and powerhouse Otis Jiry has his very own show here on our network, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, which you can hear every Sunday night. On that note, be sure to check out the other shows we offer on our network. We have Fear from the Heartland, featuring horror stories brought to you from the Heartland, airing Wednesdays. Eric Peabody's Horror Hill, a podcast dedicated to some of our deeper and darker tales. We hope you'll check him out. And Drew Blood's Dark Tales airs Fridays, featuring some southern down-home horror. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us, please, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host of the evening, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week, when we once again turn off the lights and turn on... The dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. <laughs>
and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.